But right now, we have the, the privilege, the opportunity to turn to the Word of God. Would you grab out your Bibles? I'm going to go to Romans chapter 8, continuing our series there. And before we do anything else, let's pray. Father, we do just come this morning with thankful hearts. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your plans and purposes that prevail, that you are at work accomplishing all that you desire for the glory of your name. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the power of your spirit. And Lord, we ask that your word would go forth and accomplish all that you desire this morning. Thank you that it never returns void. But would you work in our hearts? Would we be a people with listening ears to hear always what it is that your spirit is saying to us? Just thank you for that privilege that you called us by name, that you reached down to rescue and redeem us. May we be caught up in who you are and the reality of what you've done for us in a fresh and a new way. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, we're going to read from verse 31 together. But as you turn there, let me tell you a story of a guy named Peter Decker. It's a name you may or may not have heard. It's a story. Is this all right, by the way, if I just move this microphone a little? Move it up. Is the technique. How's that? Is that a little better? No one responded either way, so I'll continue on. Peter Decker. he was a, a gentleman who, as a young man, escaped from uh, the rising communist tide in 1914. And he and his family had saved for some months. They'd put together all the money they could to put him on a boat, a journey that would take some weeks and months to head across to the USA to start a new life for him and then potentially as things unfolded uh, for the rest of his family. So he arrived in 1914 and eventually would go on and the Lord would use him powerfully in a variety of ways. But he tells this story as he boarded this ship and they'd used every penny they had to get him on board this passage to begin his new life. And his mother, as good mothers do, had slipped him just enough provisions to last about a week. Some stale bread, some uh, different goodies to keep him at least somewhat alive during this journey. Well, as the story goes, he was about a week in to um, this journey and he'd used all of his provisions. And he used to walk each and every day past the, the mess hall, the food hall. And he saw these extravagant plates of food three times a day. People would gather He'd look longingly through the window. And in fact, on one of these occasions, one of the stewards on the ship came past and thought he was a stowaway and said, well, what, what are you doing here? Have you got a ticket? And he said, well, here's my ticket, produced his ticket. And the steward said, well, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you're a, you're a paid passenger. And he said, in fact, what are you doing outside here? This ticket that you've purchased includes three free meals a day. Come on inside, he says. And so Peter would use that story regularly to talk about this reality of the gospel and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's not just a ticket to get us to the other side. It's not just eternal glory as wonderful and as important as that is for us to grab a hold of and to remember to be eternally minded. It's also the Lord's provision for the journey. And so as we conclude Romans chapter 8, Paul is in 
A similar moment to the steward on the ship that day, trying to make sure and ensure that we are aware of all the provision that the Lord has paid for us. In fact, there's nothing new in this portion of Scripture. And he begins in Romans 8.31 asking this question, what do we say to these things? See, he's proclaimed the gospel. He's talked about it being the only message unto salvation. He's unpacked the theology. He's delved into some practicalities. And this is his moment just to review and take a moment to say, well, what should our response be? What, what does that mean for us? What is there? What is this provision for us to partake of, not just in eternal glory, as wonderful that is, but in the everyday, day-to-day that we find ourselves in. So let's read this passage together, and we're going to just pull a few things out as we go. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things, being the proclamation of the gospel that is unpacked for the last eight chapters? And there's five in here if you want to notice them as we go through. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How many things? All things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, for you and for me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure some translations say, I am convinced. There's no shadow of doubt here. This is something that I am sure of and convinced about, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Kind of feels like a moment for an amen, doesn't it? We could happily just leave the sermon, leave the book, live the rest of our lives reflecting and pondering upon this proclamation that Paul has made for us. The provisions of Christ, not just for eternity, but unpacking the fullness of all that this ticket provides, all that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has made available to us. Now, there's five particular declarations, they're questions, but they're really more proclamations or they're, they're foundational realities that Paul is encouraging us with as he concludes this chapter. We want to look at it. Number one, if you're taking notes, verse 32, he says this, if God is for us, then who can be against us? You see, he spent some time, hasn't he, unpacking this notion of there is a God who's not just for us, but he's so for us that he gave everything that he had to make a way where there was no way. You can tell how committed somebody is to you 
by how much skin they have in the game. And he's proven, as Paul will go on to unpack, that he has put everything on the table in pursuit of you and us. And so his first question is this, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If there indeed is this God who's stepped in the midst of human history, if he's destroyed death in the grave, if he's triumphed over the enemy, and if he's called you and I by name, if there indeed is this heralding of a gospel that Paul has proclaimed, a new age that has dawned, a new era that has become, not a proclamation of what we must do, but of what he has accomplished, that his kingdom has been established, that the reign and rule of this king is from now and evermore everlasting. The king has come. He's come to reign. He's established that reign through dying and through rising again from the grave. It's what we remembered as we came to Easter, his death and his resurrection. If there's a kingdom that's, that's now waged war on the power of darkness, taking captivity captive and delivering sons and daughters from the bondage of sin and death that even all creation groan as this incredible plan of salvation is outworked and fully culminated. If there is this light that's broken through the darkness, illuminating everything so that nothing looks the same again. If there is a king who's come to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty the oppressed, this kingdom that is a greater reality, a greater truth, and a, great, a greater assurance than anything the world could offer, then I hope you'd agree with me, that makes some kind of a distance. What shall we say, says Paul says? Well, if we truly grasp that, the one thing we cannot say is nothing. You cannot see that and be like, ah, oh, yeah, this is what it is. It, it, it just, it doesn't compute. He's saying recognize and realize that if God is for us, who can be against us? If that truly is the case, then that changes everything. It's the first question. Second, also in verse 32, and I love this one too. He says, if, if God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. He gave everything he had for us, everything he had to give us. Here's the question, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Not some things. If that's truly the depth of his love for us and the provision that he's made for us, how could he not care about the details of our lives? See, it's funny, isn't it? Sometimes we're... Perhaps, you know, listening to a proclamation like we did at the start. Well, God's for us and his kingdom's come and praise God. We've got faith to believe that. But where we struggle is in the day-to-day. -day. I believe that. You know, sin has been destroyed. The power of the enemy defeated. But I'm still not quite sure that he can take care of that particular need, of that circumstance. Is he really good enough? Is he really... It's like we lack faith for those things. And yet Jesus himself proclaimed. He said, what? Why are you anxious? Isn't he the God who takes care not just of the big things, not just of breaking into the darkness with the light, but doesn't he clothe the lilies? Doesn't he care for the sparrows? And how much more does he love to care and provide for your every need? 
And see, we live differently again if we grab a hold of this. And Jesus says it. He says, do not be anxious. That's the way the Gentiles live. They're just anxious. There's constant anxiety about what they'll wear, what they'll do. That's not the way we live. We live with this confidence in a God who provides everything that we need according to his riches in glory. Do we not believe that he has the best for us? Do we not believe that he has the answers that we seek? Do we not believe that his desire and his pleasure? That's what scripture says. Grab this. It says, fear not, little flock. Jesus says, it is your father's pleasure. It's his desire to give you the kingdom. There's no reluctance. He's not thinking, well... I'm not sure if you've measured up this week. I don't know whether truly it's, it's his desire, it's his pleasure as any good father who loves to provide for their children. There's no reluctance. It's like this is what I was born for. This is who I am. I love to provide for those whom are my children, my beloveds. Will he not give us all things? And he continues... That's two. Number three, in verse 33, it says this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Two thoughts here in this wonderful proclamation and this question that Paul is asking us in in response as we look back. The first thought is this, to make sense of what Paul is saying, that we are God's elect. That word means literally God's chosen. You may not be the first choice of anyone else or anything else in this life, but the Lord of eternity, he says, I have chosen you. I've purposed you in my heart before I laid the foundation of the world. You are his choice. You're his first, not not his second, third, fourth, fifth. You are his elect. And Paul has unpacked that. And in fact, we're going to take this tangent in Romans 9, 10, and 11 when we get there. And we talk about this whole notion of election. What does that actually mean? What does it look like? But he has chosen you. So Paul is saying, if, if God has chosen you, if he has called you by name, then who else could bring any charges against you? Or another way to phrase this would be, what other voices truly matter when his voice... The loudest voice, the only voice that matters, has already proclaimed that he has chosen you. What other voices could matter? So we live in this world, don't we, that's just surrounded by all of these voices trying to tell us who we are. And Paul's bringing us back and he's saying, remember this. Remember, above all things, that he has chosen you. What else compares to that? You are his elect. Question number four, he goes on. He says, who is to condemn? For Christ Jesus is the one who's died. More than that, he was raised. And before that, it says, it is God who has justified. God himself has justified. Therefore, who is it that can or could ever condemn? And we've explored that as we've gone through this series. We talked about Um, these great men of the faith, Luther, who calls this declaration, this proclamation of God's justification, the hinge of all Christian faith and doctrine. It's hard to 
overemphasize. But it's important for us to at least try to grab a hold of everything that Paul said in, in the book of Romans was leading up to that moment of what, what, what is going to happen? What, what on earth could happen here? We're profoundly lost. The world is spiraling out of control. Have you noticed things are not a lot better as you look at the daily news? We're still in that same place. We're without hope. What is going to happen? And in steps the one who is both the just and the justifier. And he has declared through what he accomplished in his work of redemption as he died in our place forever the right to declare us justified. You have been made righteous through his work. So who, who can come against that? Who can bring condemnation? Certainly not the Lord. It would be to deny himself. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. He's paid the price. It's a finished work. And we live now and will live for all eternity in the light and in the power of that proclamation. Who is there that could condemn us? See, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know, having worked as a pastor for many years, that those voices of condemnation are ever-present. The enemy loves nothing more than just to bring in those little accusatory comments. But we can stand in the power of that truth that Paul has proclaimed. Stand there. That's what matters. He has declared you to be righteous. And that leaves us to his, his last and his final proclamation, verse 34. End of 34. Of 35. It says, So therefore, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, he goes on, there's, there's not death, no life, angels, rulers, nothing present, nothing to come, no powers, no height, no depth, no anything else in all of creation. Do you get the picture? He's saying there is, there's nothing. There is nothing that could separate us from his love, from his affection, from the power of what he has done and what he has won for us. So I think if we're honest, some of us have far more faith in our ability to lose our way than we do have faith in his capacity to lead us, even through the market, through the mire. I think we have far more confidence in our capacity to mess things up, to make mistakes. Oh, that's it. Um, um, than we do in his power and the provision that he has made for us. We're more conscious of our lack than we are of his sufficiency, more aware of our weakness than we are of his power that's made perfect. Not in the absence of our weakness. Not when we can finally, no, when, when we allow his power to be made perfect in the midst of our weakness. What could separate us from his love? Nothing is his answer. Nothing. Recognize that. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what is coming against you. It doesn't matter how royally you make a mess of things. It, it, nothing matters. No power of hell, no scheme of man, as a wonderful song says, could ever take, could ever snatch us out of his hand. We are held securely. We are held 
securely. Nothing can separate us from him. So there's these five pillars, but that leads us somewhere. And this is where I want to land this morning. And, and I love this. Verse 37 is where we're kind of headed. He says, what do we say to all these things? Well, there's those five truths, there's those five questions, those five proclamations that he reminds us of, that he refreshes and says, remember, this, this is what you're partaking of. This is what Christ has already done. And this is where it leads us to, in verse 37, he says, in all these things, and those things are the passage before, he said, look, it's, it's written that for your sake, we're being killed all day long, we're being regarded as sleep to the shorter, he said, that, and he's, he's basically proclaiming that that's the case, he's saying there's persecution, there's difficulties around, we're not living in some bubble where there's a protection and a shelter and you'll never face anything difficult. There'll be no trials that will ever come against you. He's saying, I know that you're in the midst of some struggles. I know there's stuff happening around you. I know that following Christ has, has cost. It has a cost associated with it. I understand all of that, but here's the truth that he wants to bring to these people as he reminds them as he stirs their heart, as he calls them to remember what Christ has done. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. Now, it's interesting. I won't ask for a show of hands again, or maybe I should, but how many of us feel like we are more than conquerors? Maybe there's some moments, a few of us here, I didn't even ask for a show of hands, but you're ready to go. Again, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of us have no idea what that even means? Like, what is, what is Paul trying, what, what does that look like? What does it mean to be more than conquerors? Well, the word literally means to gain a surpassing victory. And I love it. Remember, here's, here's the context. The context is, he says, I know there's difficulties around. I know there's circumstances coming against you. I know people are even um, losing their lives because of their faith in Christ. And yet still in the midst of that scenario, here's what I want to proclaim, that you were born again to conquer. You were born again to overcome. See, he's saying here's here's the purpose of the gospel. It's not so that you would get saved and then live in defeat, despair, and encouragement. You were born again to life, and you were born in Christ to overcome. Now, let me kind of unpack and explain why I believe that's important and what that means for us. In my particular household, um, we love to watch sport. I mean, it's an Aussie thing, but um, I've got a household of girls, so for me, that's a particularly proud parenting moment. Comes to cricket season, and the girls have the little books, and they record the statistics, and they know the teams, and it took a little bit more work with the football season, but I had one of my girls this week... Uh, school holidays, of course, and I said, Dad, but at least we've got the TV plan for the week because we've got Thursday night footy, we've got Friday night footy, we've got Saturday night, Saturday night footy, and then we've got Sunday afternoon football. She said, what else is there? I said, there is nothing else. Good girl. There's a lot of promise with that child. But we love to watch sport, and we were watching this game and any good, particularly a team sport, the, the games that I love is where there's kind of this, this arm wrestle and there's this shifting momentum in the game. And you see there was a, a great football game uh, just a week or so ago that I was watching with one of my girls. And there was, there was this one team that looked like they were down and out. You know the scenario, they're all despondent on the pitch. 
And then all it takes sometimes is one little moment. It can be a great tackle. It can be a feat of strength. And just, just something small can shift the momentum. And momentum's a powerful thing. The moment the team sort of starts to believe, all of a sudden it can change the, the direction and the outcome of the game. On the other side of the coin, we had a, had a different one of my girls, and they've all loved playing netball. And she had one particular season of netball, and I think it was the first season of netball. She was with a, a, a team of some quite athletic girls, and they were doing very well, but they didn't know where to put them, so they put them in sort of the lowest division. And they'd played half of this season, and they were absolutely thrashing. Like, every game was 50 nil, and almost got a little bit boring. Uh, but they, they were elated. Every game, they were happy. They were working together with a team. There was high fives. You know, you just get a bit fancy, and you start doing these trick shots. And it, it, just the confidence, you know, strutting onto the field. And, and so what they did, halfway through the season, they're like, look, this is not working for you guys to be down in the lower grade. We're going to bump you up a grade. And so it was quite interesting. So they went from winning every game convincingly, and then all of a sudden, the tables were completely flipped. So they were losing by significant margins. And the first game, I think they came off and they were shell-shocked. They were like, what, what is that? Like, what on earth just hit us? We walked in the middle of some sort of a, a sandstorm. And it, it didn't take long, two or three games. And it was funny. It struck me because this was the same team of girls, the same ability, the same season, it was the same courts they were playing on, the same abilities within the team and potential for teamwork and camaraderie, and they went from this united, nothing can beat us team to this team of defeat and discouragement. I mean, players were given up, they were like, what's the point in even just watching and there's another goal and... Some of the players started to get a bit antsy with one another. You know, they turned and it's all your fault. You should be trying. Like, it was, it was quite a, a revealing insight into how we play the game and the power of perspective. You see, what I believe that Paul is trying to say to us here, it's not just some kind of uh, positive self-help Speak to, you know, tell, tell yourself you're a conqueror. He's literally going to the way in which we approach life, our perspective in the midst of this game. He's saying, I want you to remember this, that you are in the midst of a, a scenario where there's challenges, where there's opposition, where there will be difficulties, there'll be trials, there'll be tribulations. But here's how you're to play this period, as long or as short as it is that God calls us before he calls us to his side in glory. He says, I want you to live with that mindset and that philosophy that you've been called to live as an overcomer. You've been called to be a more than a conqueror. He has conquered and therefore you can know what it is to live that way and live with that perspective. And that radically changes the game. I love the book of Revelation, always have. And there's this phrase repeated through. It's one of these um, themes that I think is often overlooked, but is so important in the midst of all that's happening. It starts off with the letter, letters to the churches. And there's this repeated phrase, there's a number of them. But it says, to him who overcomes. There's this promise. 
to each church, to him who overcomes. And the thing I love about that is it's not just the churches that are going well. It's the churches who are going bad. It's the churches, it's everything in the middle. There's this call, wherever you find yourself in life, whatever's going on around you, there's a call to the overcomer. And in Revelation 17, there's a wonderful passage there that expands it even more. And as John pens it, he, he writes it this way. He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accused them day and night before our God and they've conquered him. Some translations say they've overcome, they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. See, there is this call as Paul says, let's reflect upon what Christ has done for us. How do we respond? How does it shift the way that we view things? We're called to live as overcomers. Thought there could be a little more excitement there, but that's all right. We'll press in. We'll continue on. We're called to live as overcomers. Well, what does that mean? As I said, it doesn't mean that all the problems are going away, but it's a perspective that we hold. It's the way that we play the game. And this is my definition here for those who like definitions. It's not that everything's going to go right. It's not every problem is going to go away. See, an overcomer or a conqueror is one who's saved by God's grace, baptized in the power of the Spirit, transformed by the, the radical love of the Father, refuses to conform to the world, is led by the Spirit of the living God, stands firm through the fires of temptation, rejoices through trial and suffering for His name's sake, loves not their lives unto death as they're sent forth as a fiery witness to proclaim the eternal gospel, rescuing multitudes from the clutches of damnation and living only for the glory and the praise of the Son. That, that is how we are called to live. See, as Peter stands up at the, the day of Pentecost, the, the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit's poured out, there's signs and wonders and miracles, there's the proclamation of the gospel. Nowhere in there do you read Peter standing up and proclaiming, well, you know, this, this is what was promised, but just so you know, this is the high point. This is the high point, this is the high watermark. You know, God's doing some stuff now, and basically what happens is it fades out into oblivion and despair and discouragement and then the Lord comes and rescues us from that miry pit. That, that's, that's not in there. He says, this is just the beginning. The Holy Spirit is being poured out. The gospel's being proclaimed. And this will be proclaimed to the whole earth as a testimony. It's just, it's just the start. Something's in motion. And that will continue until the gospel's proclaimed. And the end, he says, will come. See, as, as, as we look around, and this is what I want us to kind of land on, and maybe we get the worship team to come back at this point, just so I stick to that promise and wrap it up. I want us to think about, as we view our lives, as we view circumstances around us, how victorious is our ecclesiology? And by that I mean, as, as, as we look at the world around us, as we look at the church, and yes, I'm not trying to, to avoid the issues. I'm not trying to say we live in a time and an era where there's 
There's no circumstances. There's, there's, there's no, I'm saying we live in the midst of that. But what is our perspective? Do we see defeat? Do we see discouragement? Is there some sense of pervading pessimism of, well, the world's just going the way it's going and we're just here to kind of endure and survive and try not to get too miserable with one another? And, or do we see, as we look around, a tomb that's empty? Do we see a grave that's overcome? Do we see the grip of sin that's broken? A kingdom that's been established, a king who's alive who himself proclaimed. He says, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what he said. That's his proclamation. This gospel, as we've read, as Paul has proclaimed, it's not just something that we get intellectually, but it's something that should grab a hold of us and cause us to live in a different way. If he's for us, then who could be against us? Won't he give us all things? Isn't his voice louder, greater? Who could bring any condemnation again? Nothing could separate us. So therefore, let's live as more than conquerors. Let's move from the shores of defeat and discouragement and disappointment. And what's the point in even trying? Let's see that shifting of momentum. It's what I believe we need in this hour is people who are willing to say, Lord, here we are, send us. Can't necessarily in a moment, it'd be nice, say a prayer and fix all the problems of the world. But we can come and say, Lord, let, let it begin here. Let it begin here. So I want us to stand if we can. I'll do a couple of things this morning. Just to turn your attention to the Lord, ask you a few questions. I'm going to pray for you and, and then just facilitate some ministry time. there's been that sense this morning we're singing in worship just about the Lord lighting the fire again Catherine I think when she got up to facilitate communion she said how, how hungry how, how thirsty are we for the Lord and see it's, it's my heart and desire this morning not to preach a message that somehow leads us into some need to work something up within ourselves. Well, we better, gosh, we better try and, that's, that's not the, the point at all. The point, as Paul has proclaimed, is for us to get a fresh picture and revelation of who Christ is and what he's done. But to do so, that lights the fire again in our hearts. 
moves us perhaps from that place where we're sitting at the bottom of defeat, sins again, stumbling. What's the point in even trying? That moves us from that place of hanging on to us, so many of us do, bitterness and unforgiveness, hanging on to the baggage, thinking somehow this is our lot in life, somehow this is doing us a favor. To move us from being a, a people where disappointments, where things haven't gone the way that perhaps we thought they should. The Lord hasn't done where things in a, in a manner or timing that we thought He should have done them in. And we're camped there in the, short, the shores of disappointment and discouragement. And my invitation to us is, as Paul has proclaimed, you're not born again through the grace of the Lord Jesus just to live in defeat and despair and discouragement. You're called through His grace, through the power of His love, through the might of His Spirit to live as people who know what it is to overcome. The secret as we read, we overcome through the power of His blood word of our testimony so Father I first of all just want to pray for us this morning I ask Holy Spirit that you just show us in our hearts and our thoughts in this season in which we find ourselves in are we are we in that place are we more defined by defeat and discouragement and despair and disappointment oh Lord is there a a genuine sense in our life just a, a fire in our bellies a purpose as we awake every morning to live and to overcome and to be a part of your kingdom and I pray for each of us Lord there'd be a sense in which you'd You'd move us. That if it is indeed where we're caught in that place of defeat, that the power of your Spirit, as we make confession, as we seek help and healing, would break the power of sin in our lives. That for those of us this morning, Lord, who are hanging on to things, there'd be a grace and and a mercy this morning to come and to lay down our burdens. That's your invitation. Come, Come who are heavy laden. What are you hanging on to that stuff for? Come and lay it down at the foot of the cross and know what it is to run with passion again. That Lord, where there is hurt, where there's pain, where there's disappointments, that you'd come just with that, the healing power of your Holy Spirit. You came to bind up the brokenhearted. And I pray this morning for healing, certainly physical, particularly just healing of the heart. 
Move, move us from that place of disappointment into the destiny that you have for us. I'll say in Jesus' name.